FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and joining me in the studio today is Dr. Natasha Andriadis. She's a certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, that is C-R-E-I. This qualification is held only by a limited number of doctors in Australia and New Zealand. C-R-E-I subspecialists are the most qualified of gynaecologists who manage infertility and hormonal issues. But beyond this, Natasha is an integrative fertility specialist. She's currently completing further studies in nutritional and environmental medicine and incorporates this focus into her daily practice, not only for the developing embryo that is exquisitely sensitive to diet and environment, but for children and adults. She helps people restore and maintain good health and is actively involved in Sarah Wilson's I Quit Sugar program. As a lecturer at Sydney University Medical School, Natasha inspires future doctors to adopt the same complete clinical approach. And I warmly welcome you, Dr. Tash, to FX Medicine. And we'll get into Dr. Tash a little bit later. <laughs> it's great to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming into the studio and joining us here. Thank you. I've got to ask, as a GP starting out, mm -hmm. you've got all of this medical stuff in your brain. What the hell happened to you to embrace nutritional medicine? I suppose it started from a personal perspective. I mean, I've always been interested in nutrition and, and um, a good diet. And, you know, I come from a good Greek uh, home yeah. where food is really, really important. Um, this is really interesting to me, this family aspect. Mm, but anyway. Very much so. And, uh, you know, growing up, dad always used to say, what are you doing eating out of a, tan a, a, a can? You should never eat out of a can. Um, it's full of chemicals. And so uh, my parents have never opened a can in their, in their lives. Really? Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward many years later, what are we reading that, you know, there are, are bisphenols lining cans and that we really should be avoiding canned food. And I thought oh, this old wisdom, you know, has constantly just been there, but I've ignored it. Hmm. Um, and so it's convenient. Very convenient. <laughs> and uh, I think it all pretty much started when I... Um, went from being a fellow to then finishing my ONG training and the reproductive medicine side of things. I then went into private practice um, and I was able to actually manage patients the way I wanted to. So I was no longer a trainee at a public hospital, but I was a, a, a private doctor. I was my own boss. Mm. And that for me, I just had an immense amount of freedom to pretty much manage patients the, the way I thought was appropriate. Um, so then I started looking into nutrition a bit further and it pretty much started from the fact that I had finished my exams, I'd gained a bit of weight, I felt off. I just didn't like the way I felt. Yep. So I thought to myself, well, I've got to, I want to go on some detox diet or, or do something. There was something I needed to do. Mm. So one day I remember walking into Dimmick's and I'm on George Street here in Sydney and uh, I saw Sarah Wilson's uh, I Quit Sugar for Life, I Quit Sugar book. 
And I picked that up and I thought, this is it. You know, I've got to focus on one ingredient, which is sugar. Um, and by just purely doing that, I lost weight. I felt so much better. And for me, it just then inspired my daily practice. So now when I see patients and they have an issue with weight, or even if they don't have an issue with weight, if they're not eating well, it goes back to that first ingredient. Because I think it's less overwhelming for a patient to say, rather than go away, lose weight, let's just focus on this one thing. I've got to ask, you know, there's been some backlash, if you like, about the sugar movement. And I was just reading a couple the other day, and one of them basically said, look, all food basically breaks down to sugar, even, you know, your proteins. You've got your glycogenic um, proteins, and then you've got your ketogenic proteins. Notwithstanding a little bit of fat goes, it doesn't go into that, but, but they were basically sort of simplifying it down to sugar. But I, I just, why don't they get the message that we're not talking about blood sugar as in glyconeogenesis, glucogenesis. We're not talking about bodily manufacture of sugar. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the intake of excess, simplified, often powdered or added mm -hmm. sugar. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Mm. Why Do they not read the book? What, what is it? Why, <laughs> it is why that. It's, it's education. It all stems from education and fear, you know. Um, I don't get it. When, when, you, when you actually read that title, I Quit Sugar, it is overwhelming and um, you will look at that and think, wait a minute, I cannot do that. And I, I think that title can sometimes in a way be a little bit misleading because it's not about quitting sugar. It's about Duh. educating yourself <laughs> about the different types of sugars and minimising the bad sugars and there are different sugars. So um, I on my coffee table at work have Sarah Wilson's book but I also have that sugar film by um, yes. oh, my, the name of the, the amazing guy who yes. made the documentary evades me, escapes I me. I, 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 I met him and nearly accosted him in the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, great book. So yes. I, I say to my patients, take a photo of the covers of those books and go and buy those books. And I like them because they're Australian authors yeah. um, and uh, a really good place to start. And I've had amazing outcomes from patients having just read those books. So I guess comparing this with your hospital life mm. with patients who were on hospital food. Yeah, <laughs> where we didn't even have time to ask them about no. nutrition. No. Well, not time. We weren't even asked Somebody or else trained. Somebody else looks after that. That's right, to take that into account. Anybody who's been in or worked in hospital knows about hospital food. It's, you know, largely devoid of any appealing or nutritional value. Just not exciting. <laughs> and, and it isn't exciting. Mm. It doesn't fit, you know, it's made for the masses. Mm. Notwithstanding that you would see people in hospital for a much shorter time, but... Do you see any evidence of contrast between the types of foods or the types of benefits people would get from food in hospital compared to real food? Okay, broth. People can make broth in their kitchen at home. Yeah. Why don't we, and, and perhaps I don't know if they do serve broth in hospitals, but what an amazing thing to serve someone when they're healing, you know, when they're not able to eat much but sip on this amazing nu nutrient-dense broth. Um uh, you just bring it back a memory for me. You know, <laughs> it's, it, yeah, the, and and uh, the colour, you know, uh, I hope they still don't serve w plain white bread in, in hospitals, but maybe that's what people need when they're healing, just something basic. But I just remember looking at the food on those trays thinking, yeah. how in uninspiring. Wilt wilted beans. Yeah, you know, and, <laughs> and, and cocoa pops mm. and cornflakes. Mm. And this is a good healthy diet for you to heal, right? Yeah, <laughs> not. Good. Yeah, broth. Bring back broth, I say. 
Yeah, I remember Nigella Lawson talking about whenever she'd go to dinner at a friend's place, if they had a chicken dish, she'd always ask them for the carcass of mm. the chicken. She'd take it home and freeze it and then she'd amass these carcasses and make her own broth. Mm. Can you take our listeners through what goes into a good broth? Mm. Sarah Wilson does that as well and yeah. she she um, kind of uh, uh, advertises that in her books that, ah. that that's what people should do. So you go to a friend's place, if there's any leftover carcass, take it home. Yeah. I would okay, I would say where's the source of the of that meat from? You'd always want to know that. Yep. You know, is it organic? Um, where's it come from? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean I've made broth using my slow cooker and you just throw the throw the bones in with some water, lots of herbs, you can add carrots, you could add um, peas. You can pretty much do whatever you want with a broth and that's what's good about it. Mm. You can really make it your own flavour. Um, and with a slow cooker, it's the easiest thing to make um, and you can freeze it. You can put it in little pods and put it in your fridge mm-hmm. and then later on take it out and use it as part of soup making or just to drink as a cup of tea. Yeah. So um, really easy and uh, I often recommend patients uh, look, in, look into broths, especially after healing post-operation. Yeah, I was, I was looking at one that um, they added lots of turmeric to it. And anti-inflammatory. So it this, yeah, really yep. good anti-inflammatory. Yeah. Um, and of course, Pete Evans is, you know, he's been attacked a lot. Um, an amazing man, but he's really sort of, um, you know, charging forward in Australia with this sort of broth sort of yeah, good on usage. Yeah. And I applaud him for that. But I've got to say, you know, you're a completely different cast from many of your colleagues. You take medicine to the people indeed with your YouTube channel, Dr. Tash. And this is something that quite excites me. And I've got to say for any of our listeners out there, please look up YouTube and look up Dr. Tash TV. <laughs> it's because you, you, you take it down, you take it through, but you take out the, you give them the important points and relevant points for their care, particularly with fertility issues. Mm. What, what sparked you to start that? I, again, after my exams, wanted to get creative because I had more time and I had more independence and freedom to do what I wanted to do. And I wanted to make information um, available to my patients very easily. Mm. And in a consultation, um, which tend to be quite long, I can't. I don't have enough time to give them all the information that I think that they may need. So, for example, um, we talk about magnesium and the benefits of magnesium, but I will say to a patient, I've got a video up of this, go up and have a, a look at it and, and watch it in your own time. This is why I'm recommending magnesium. And I also learn a lot from actually making those videos. Yep. So it kind of forces me to do my own research. And, um, you know, I have a love and, and passion for food. So those videos that I've done up about food, like fennel and, mm. and turmeric, mm. um, again, a lot of fun. But it's about making uh, learning and sharing that information fun and accessible and free. You know, a lot of people ask me, oh, you must be making money from your YouTube channel. No, it actually costs me quite a lot of money to make those videos, Mm -hmm. but I get, they're very valuable for me and I get a lot out of that. And I know my patients do too. People don't think about what goes into production of something. That's right. Yeah. just see the end thing. That's right. Yeah. So I like to interview people as well. So I had a patient of mine who had thyroid cancer and she, using her intuition, pretty much diagnosed um, or, or may help patients, help doctors make the diagnosis of thyroid cancer. And I interviewed her for one of my um, my videos and um, I show that to patients who have had issues with, you know, trusting their own intuition yep. or who have had thyroid cancer and need a bit of hope. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. 
that's a whole nother podcast about how confronting, frustrating that can be for patients when they know that something's wrong, but they can't, Mm. when they go and see a doctor, the doctor can't put it into a Mm. box. Mm. And so there is no definable box. Mm. Where do they go? And they go from, you you commonly see this Mm. in things. I've been from doctor to doctor to doctor, and finally I found dot, dot, dot. Mm. And their intuition, you know, that that inner voice is what keeps them going. Yeah. And I think as doctors, you can't, I always ask someone, patients, what does your intuition tell you? You know, always. Why don't doctors ask that question? Why? You're not taught that as a doctor. How do you handle that with colleagues, like Mm. with their more dogmatic approach, Mm. their more medical approach? Why are you so different? Um, maybe because I've kind of, I, I follow more of a spiritual path as well. And I think that we, in, in medicine and medical school, we should actually have a bit of more, more of a spiritual training, more mind body medicine. We didn't have that at my med school mm. and I still don't think they had that at most med schools. And, um, to understand that the, the, the human body is more, we're just more than flesh. Mm. Um, and when it comes to my colleagues and discussing that, um, I know that that everyone has an intuition, and when we talk about intuition, they know what I'm talking about. Um, so I, I don't feel uncomfortable in discussing that with my colleagues. Um, and if anything, I think it might be inspiring to some of them. So, okay. So how do how do you then handle criticism of your more conservative, I'm going to say dogmatic colleagues? Um, I like to have discussions with people. So if somebody does say criticise something I say, then I'd like to get into an in-depth discussion about that. I I don't like running away from criticism. I like working with it. Um, So I take it pretty well, actually. But most of my colleagues are pretty good. And some of them are probably inspired by by that openness. I hope so. Yeah. Now, I've got to ask you about an avid area of interest of yours, Mm -hmm. and that is genetics. Mm. Tell us about what sparked your interest in this area, because it's really, you know, it's in its infancy, in its acceptance in medicine, despite there being a number of defined areas, Mm -hmm. you know, the usage of tamoxifen in certain genome, Mm -hmm. uh, in certain alleles. Um, We know that, for instance, if people are on treatment for helicobacter pylori, the triple treatment, Mm. triple therapy, um, that some people will not respond to the PPI as mm, well. Mm. And so they may have to double the mm, dose mm. Um, to get that same sort of effect as anybody who doesn't mm. have that allele. So mm. there are certain defined areas. They're not being used. Largely, they're no. not being used. And yet this is, there's this whole other area that I would say it's not even accepted yet. And yet it's well defined. We know MTHFR is a defined thing with mm. different alleles. Mm. What it affects, uh, I think. I think that's going to be the area of contention in medicine. Mm. But we know that you know certain people might have areas with fertility or neural tube defects. With and there's areas um, about how people handle folic acid. There's certain issues with, you know, cancer of folic acid compared to folates or Mm. MTHF. Mm. How do you use genetics in your practice in a fertility arena? So uh, I suppose going back to your initial question, which mm. is how I got Five into it. Five questions in yeah, one, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, well, I did, a, I did um, a, a Master's of Reproductive Sciences and Genetics at Sydney Uni. Yeah. Um, so that's where my interest sparked. And then I, um, you know, as a fertility specialist, I talk about genetics with my patients all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm very comfortable in talking about 
you know, doing uh, PCR testing, looking at, at genes for cystic fibrosis. As part of fertility treatment now, especially IVF, we are doing a lot of pre-implantation genetic screening and diagnosis. Ah. So that's very routine in, in reproductive medicine now. So um, the, the, I can see that the technology is just going so quickly that you, as a fertility specialist, you have to keep up with that. Right. Now, what I find interesting is um, genetic panels that uh, look at uh, certain alleles that put you at risk of X, Y, and Z. So they're health and well-being panels, for example. Yeah. So from a personal perspective, I've done quite a lot of genetic tests on myself, um, from ancestry panels to panels looking at my risk of de developing diabetes, cholesterol, inflammatory markers. So I spent <laughs> a couple of thousand of do dollars doing that. Yeah. Um, and it changed the way I live my life. So, uh, for example, I have a lot of um, genetic markers that put me at risk of developing diabetes. Now, when I saw those markers, I went, wow, I should check my HbA1c, my fasting glucose. And I was quite surprised because they were in the upper limit of normal. Right. Now, I don't have any family history of diabetes on either side of my family. So that was where I was going to go. So yeah. no family history. No family history. But, but you, you have look, the alleles. But I have the alleles. But then you'll see how my parents live, very different to the way I live. Yeah. So, you know, they, they eat. They don't eat out. They've, their stress levels are minimal. Um, and I live a different life. I'm a doctor. I'm probably more stressed. I eat out a lot. Now, I realised then, okay, if I don't be careful, then I might develop diabetes. So I, I, up until then, I was, oh, my, I don't have any family history. I've got nothing to worry about. Right. So this, this gets into the, the medical relevance of it because traditionally we would ask a family history and that was how you would determine mm. certain risk factors mm. um, or preponderance for same. But it's kind of like, you know, the obesity gene. You know, you can have the OB-OB gene mm. or the DB gene mm. and if you don't have that lifestyle that predisposes it to you, you're fine. But mm. if you start then to eat that gene, the gene will look after you. The mm. gene will want you to quote unquote survive. Mm. Problem is you've now got too much of a good thing and you now get obese or diabetes. Epigenetics at its best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And nutrigenomics at its best. That's right. Why don't more doctors think about this though? Because there's still, there's still that. They're unaware of it. So yeah. I, I've given a few talks about this and um, people are just not aware that these tests are available, um, but they are very much available. And um, for example, pharmacogenomics. So one, my personal experience with, with that was I was walking past a Chemmark chemist and saw that this test was available. I thought I'll just do it just to see out of interest what's going on with my genetic profile. Hmm. And the day that I got my result, um, I had pretty bad period pain in the morning, quite intense. And I don't usually have really bad period pain, but anyway, it was quite bad. I was consulting. So I thought I had to take something for pain relief. And in my rooms, I had some tramadol, which I took and I got severely nauseous, um, to the point where I thought I, I was going to vomit and no relief from the pain. So that wow. afternoon I went to the chemist and got my result and I cannot metabolize tramadol. Right. So I should not take it. Yeah. And the, I have a lot of um, gene changes, which means that I can't take a lot of, of drugs. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting to me because I see a lot of women who are on antidepressants um, prenatally and, you know, they're, they're chopping and changing, changing their antidepressants because it's not working. Mm. They're trying to get pregnant. Um, 
So you've got to balance whether they should be on a drug or not, mm-hmm. given what we know about antidepressants and the effects in of, 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 yep. um, of that on the fetus and the, um, the, the infant. So if you do pharmacogenomic profiling in these patients, you can actually then say to them, this is the drug that you should be taking. So it, it, it just helps you target yeah. that. And um, it's, it is widely available, you know. So how do you balance the usefulness against the cost? Because there's some of these that are still quite a high cost. You know, they're not that, that no. expensive. This pharmacogenomic now? testing is only $150. But then again, I am a doctor in a private setting and yep. most people who see me are probably able to afford it. And and probably for some other people, they would be out of reach. But in, in terms of genetic testing, it's pretty cheap. You know, when you do a genetic test, you don't have to do it again. It's, it's Very true. That's it. Mm. And the um, the health and wellbeing profiles that I do through a company called Fit Genes, it's based in Melbourne, um, 400 odd dollars for a health and wellbeing panel that looks at inflammatory genes, cholesterol, fat metabolism, detoxification, cholesterol, really not that much money, I think, for the value you get. Food and genes. Is diet enough or do you employ judicious supplementation Mm. in your care? Like, for instance, we spoke earlier about Mm. MTHFR. Mm. Look, I I believe it should always start with the diet and um, there are many people who don't need supplements because they are getting very good nutritious, nutrient-dense intake, but that's not most people. Um, so I, I like to, I, I don't really like using multivitamins. I like to target specific um, uses of supplements. For example, if someone has issues with muscle aches and pains, um, problems with sleeping, then I would recommend a good magnesium at night. Um, PMS, magnesium works beautifully. You know, Lara Bryden in her book wrote about that. Yeah. There's an interesting, um, talk, this is more about, uh, leg cramps and PMS, I think, but there was an interesting debate, if you like, that went on between Thiz Jacobs, um, and Guy Abrahams about calcium and magnesium for PMS, which mm. is better. Mm. What was interesting, so the lady who did the research, I can't remember her first name, Thiz Jacobs was her last name. She had the better trial. Hers was on calcium being positive for reducing cramps in PMS. Forgive my memory, but I think there was something that came out that she worked or had some association with Lederly that at that stage was the make, were the makers of Caltrate, calcium oh, carbonate. Okay. Yep. Um, whereas Guy Abrahams has a, had a much lesser powered study and there, so therefore it was sort of lambasted. But clinically, magnesium seems to be the hero. Mm. The problem is which magnesium? Don't want to go brands, mm, but mm. do you have a preference of type of magnesium? No, like citrate, you get your citrate, orotate. Even oxide can work. People yeah. are paranoid about oxide. Oxide's great if you, like, in massive amounts, if you want to do a bowel cleanse, it's called pick a prep. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in small amounts. My favourite amounts, is citrate. But your favourite yeah, citrate? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The Germans, like, they, yeah. it's citrate all the way. Yeah. In the Americans, there's a lot of this diglycinate sort of thing. Mm. I find diglycinate works sort of quicker, but I've got clinicians that, I, that are dear to me, that taught me, mentored me, who are fans of the orotate. Mm. Um, for heart, it seems to be orotate mm. all the way. Mm. You know, mm. so you find so the citrate the, works. Yeah, exactly. Really I mean, quick. if I was a if I was a uh, a heart physician, then I might be pre- recommending a different type of magnesium. That's but right. But I said very different group of of people. Yeah. My, my patients uh, tend to be in reproductive age groups, so they're pretty generally quite healthy. Mm. So um, 
and it's about maximising that health, getting people to be as healthy as possible for, for baby making. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it's about. So what dose of magnesium citrate do you use? Uh, about two to 400 milligrams of magnesium. Elemental magnesium. Yeah, 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 yeah. Per day. And no problems with bowel tolerance with that sort of dose? Um, some do, but most don't. Mm. Yeah, I say start, start at 200 and then work up. And do you, do you look at the, you know, traditional naturopathic type, um, let's call them clinical signs of um, magnesium deficiency, you know, the ocular twitch, the nocturnal, nocturnal leg cramps, or do you um, just think about magnesium and its pharmacological sort of action? Good question. I usually just ask them, how, did, how are you going on the magnesium? Mm. And they will usually say, I really like it. Yeah. Um, and if they don't say anything else, then I won't go into it. Yeah, but no, generally I find it's very well tolerated. Yeah. Yeah. You just said that many of your patients, most of your patients are pretty generally healthy, mm. but Australia has a notorious, uh, a dubious honour of being one of the fattest nations on earth and we're not getting thinner. So about the issue with overweight and dare I say it, underweightness in, mm. in certain populations, mm, exos- people who exercise, yep. what about issues affecting fertility like polycystic ovarian mm. syndrome. Mm. Indeed, I've got to quickly ask you, should Australians be using polycystic ovarian syndrome, polycystic ovarian disease? Are they interchangeable or are there differences? I think at the moment um, there's really no difference <laughs> in terminology. We know what it means. Yeah. We know that and you've got to know the definition. So PCOS, PCOD, same difference. Yeah, PCOS. Right. We, we generally, fertility specialists talk about PCOS. We don't talk about disease the right. peak yeah right. um i don't like using the word disease uh, i don't like using it it's got kind of negative connotations um but it's important for people to understand what the definition of pcos is yeah. so the the definition is we generally use the rotterdam um consensus 2003 or 4 it was where we know it's a distinct two out of three criteria you know you have polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound um you have uh, two is an ovulation or, or, or you know, irregular periods, three, ac- ac- acne, hirsutism, um, and biochemical evidence of, of high androgens, et cetera. So two out of those three, and then after excluding for things like thyroid dysfunction and high prolactin. So I always find it's always important to actually say to a patient, this is how we make the diagnosis of this condition. Yes, it's very common. One in, say, 10 women have this condition, um, and it's generally lifestyle-driven. Uh, most people who have this condition tend to be overweight and obese, but I see a lot of thin PCOS and they tend to be the harder ones to manage. Mm. Um, and they tend to almost have the more severe disease I find, or so I've used the word disease, but um, manifestation. Yeah. 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 Uh, where they have quite bad acne, quite bad hirsutism. Uh, and yet they're fit looking. Yeah, but the, the yeah, the Thin toffee. looking. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and that's where things and looks can be deceiving in that way. Indeed, I like you're twigging my interest here because I'm I'm thinking about a somebody that I know who's had a horrible um, challenge with ongoing acne, and no GP has thought about looking deeper into the hormones. Indeed, this lady's got a um, a genetic um, predisposition. She's got the cardiolipin antibody, Mm. and I've been really wondering. I just go, why are they looking at more hormones here? Mm. 
Um, she can't take the OCP, so there's, the, you know, she can't take a medicine for her acne. Mm. <laughs> Are they addressing her diet and putting she, her on supplements? Very, very healthy sort. No, yeah. not an integrative GP. Right. And I've been trying to get her to Got see her. Got her off one. dairy? Yeah, it's all conundrum. <laughs> for a trial anyway. Extremely, extremely healthy mm. young lady mm. who's had this horrible challenge in her life and she needs somebody to look into that area, mm. but nobody seems to be doing it. Anyway, getting back to PCOS. Dietary intervention for PCOS. What's your favourite? What sort of things do you concentrate on? Sugar. So uh, refined sugar intake, but also complex carbs. What type of complex carbs? You know, you're eating pasta, bread, potatoes, mm. rice. So you're nice. eating a lot of that. So we've got to look at starch as well. And there is a genetic test you can do to look at someone's ability to metabolize starches. Uh -huh. And that's that, that gene is called Amy one um, and I've got a very low Amy one. <laughs> can, can I ask yeah. though, yeah. if you have a predisposition for not being able to metabolize starches, mm. metabolize them into fuel, mm. like where do you go from there? Does that mean that if you metabolize it better, that you have a greater preponderance for weight gain or if you metabolize it less, you have a greater If you metabolize it better, you're less likely to gain weight. Your body can use it for more effectively. Fuel, exactly. Right, so right, to burn. Chinese populations tend to have a higher Amy 1 and perhaps that's because they eat a lot of rice and yep. genetically they have been adapted to that. Um, so uh, that can be a very useful test to do because it helps motivate people. When they can see they've got a low Amy 1, they'll go, oh, wow, that's why I can't really um, lose weight very easily because my diet is full of pasta and bread. Yep. And then they'll say, okay, I'll take those away now. I'll take those beige foods away and add a bit more colour. Beige foods, I love yeah. it. Yeah. So sugar is super important because we know that um, PCOS patients are more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. So, um, And in managing PCOS, a diet always comes first. It's the first thing we're trained Absolutely. to do, which is one thing I, I've liked about my training. Um, there's a lot of relevance in regards to food there um, and, uh, and and focusing on that one ingredient, but also, you know, low GI, low glycemic index and load, you know, you can go into that as well with patients and I give them references to, to a couple of web websites so they are familiar with what that means. And overwhelmingly, when you look at diets, infertility and reproductive medicine, med Mediterranean diet comes, comes to the uh, always it's, it's here, always right? at the top, yeah. yeah. Um, which means not that much red meat at all. It's more fish, and mm. I think that's where people get confused because yes. I think of Greek Greek diet, for example, oh, souvlaki, mm. lots of souvlaki. Mm. Whereas, in fact, when you go to Greece, um, meat is not that commonly eaten. It's more fish, particularly in the in the in the, the island in the regions, island yeah. regions yeah. where yeah. they've done those longevity studies. Yeah, this is the thing that interests me about Ireland with the potato famine. Why do they eat more fish? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. That's a good Probably point. at the pub. <laughs> Sorry. Be bad I'm, at fish. I'm going to get some criticism <laughs> on FX medicine. <laughs> um, well, potatoes are very nutritious too, you know, but a um, bit starchy. <laughs> bit starchy. So how do you handle then somebody that might have, you know, let's say irritable bowel syndrome. You need them on the low FODMAP diet uh, and they've got – a requirement for a low sugar type diet and you want to get a lot of these polyphenols, a, mm. a Mediterranean style, but some of those foods include high FODMAP foods. Mm. How do you then juggle that one? I Look, I'll refer to specialists for that, like a good dietitian or an excellent nutritionist. So yep. yeah, that's beyond my expertise. So there will be cases where it'll be pretty simple that 
I can manage that. But in, in many cases, I'll go, I'm referring you to somebody else. Yeah. And cool. That, that all usually works quite well. And on that sort of point of dietary interventions, you know, I, I remember reading, was it a review of studies? Um, and, you know, fertility specialists were basically saying that, um, you know, naturopathic nutritional intervention has no place in fertility, that it doesn't work. Well, hang on, polycystic ovarian syndrome is pretty well medically defined. <laughs> so I was just saying, well, how, do you, how, can, how could they have reached that conclusion? What is the feeling of fertility specialists more conventional than yourself with mm. regards to dietary intervention? Do they just not bother? No, they're opening up about that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think more fertility specialists and general doctors are, are slowly um, accepting of that. And I do say slowly. But it's important to realise that 70 to 80% of our patients, those who are coming to us, are already doing that. They're already seeing a dietitian, a nutritionist, a, an acupuncturist, right. a naturopath. So doctors are being exposed to that and they they don't they can't close their eyes on yeah. that anymore. Especially they try. <laughs> yeah, they try, but especially when a patient says to you, I've I've seen an acupuncturist and that's how my periods became regular again. Mm. How can you ignore that mm. when that was the only thing that, that they did differently? I wait for the day that doctors become more open-minded rather than closing down the conversation with their patients because we know that patients are using natural medicines. They are it's just whether you know about it and maybe that will open up a, a more open, uh, a more congenial dialogue between natural health practitioners and GPs and get some good results for their patients. Because in the end, that's what it's about. Mm. It's not about who's right. Mm. It's the patient's well-being. Just moving on, I guess around that sort of area, what would you say are the top three issues which you see natural health practitioners or indeed medical practitioners not doing well, that they need to be more aware of for your patients? I'd say number one, communication. So not communicating with each other. So if you're going, you should CC the naturopath into your letter. Let them know what, what you're doing and ask that naturopath to also CC you into correspondence as well. Ah, nice. So communication. Yep. Um, curiosity is the second one. So uh, being curious and being more open-minded. So someone, a patient often will bring up something that you've never heard of, then don't close it. Don't close the door on that, but rather ask about that in more detail. Look it up. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've learned things from my patients that I've then explored myself and then offered to patients subsequently that have helped them. Right. A lot. Wow. Um, and I think thirdly, being um, open-minded enough to ask questions and, you know, we don't, you don't have to know anything. You won't ever know everything. Yeah. Um, and being more humble, not being humble enough, mm. letting ego take over. That's, that's one criticism I have. Two last quick questions. And I know they're podcasts all on their own right. <laughs> <laughs> but the first one is another fertility issue, which is very common amongst mm -hmm. younger women. Endometriosis. Mm. Um, can you take us quickly through the etiology? Um, you know, we did a previous podcast which somebody criticised, and and I take some of that criticism. Part of it we refute. But what are the key issues that people can twig? Practitioners can twig to take care of their patients with endometriosis. 
I mean, etiology we're not completely sure about. There are lots of um, theories, you know, is it uh, is it genetic? Is it environmental? I think um, all of those, is it autoimmune? I think all of those things will come into play. Whenever managing someone with endometriosis, I think it's super important to take a multidisciplinary approach and to give patients options and to explore all options as well. Um, and not to just go straight to the script pad and write the, the script for the pill. Because there's, there's, there was a recent article um, just recently in the Fertility Reproductive Medicine Journal, Fertility Sterility, that basically said the pill probably isn't the best thing for them. And, uh, really? Yeah. You know, and we've probably been doing wrong by these women all this time because obviously the pill's got estrogen in it. And why would you give estrogen to someone who... To an estrogen... Exactly. Not estrogen dominant. <laughs> that's, that's right. But maybe progest progesterone-resistant um, condition. And, you know, progesterone versus progestins, very different. Yes. And that should be a whole podcast in itself. Absolutely. Um, because there are a lot of people who don't know the difference between the two. Mm. Um, multidisciplinary approach. So I, 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 I use pelvic floor physiotherapists. I use an advanced laparoscopic surgeon. So if you've got endometriosis and you need to have it surgically removed, what's important for patients to realize and their practitioners is that not all surgeons are created equally. So I am not a, I'm not a, a, I'm an advanced lapros laparoscopic surgeon. You know, I will refer to my colleagues who do this surgery every day because it's not easy surgery. Right. And, um, and some surgeons refer to endo managing that a bit like almost treating cancer because it can be very invasive and difficult to treat. But then they're not termed tumors, they're termed lesions, correctly? Yeah. Is that correct? When yeah. you say a lesion of endometriosis, you're actually seeing kind of a speck of, of the of the process on yeah. a on a per pelvic peritoneum, for example. Um, it's it, that's where it, it's and nutrition is a big thing. Um, supplements, meditation, but also pain education. So, oh, yes. um, one very good pelvic floor physiotherapist that I work with, Heba Shahid, um, has an interest in educating people about the neuroscience of of pain. Yeah. So if we understand pain better, mm. we're less likely to be sensitive to it. Because even though we say pain is in your brain, it's true. Pain is in your head. It is in your head because that's where pain is generated. Mm. Our brains generate mm. pain, that sensation. Uh, so education is key. Mm. And I often refer patients to read books on um, on pain and managing that. So um, that is, I mean, that can mm. go into childbirth and Absolutely. You know, so many other. Every aspect of life, yeah. neck pain, mm. you know, neck shoulder pain. pain, pain yeah. Um, pain is a is a very interesting area. Last quick question, iodine, mm -hmm. championed by Professor Creswell Eastman, mm -hmm. um, and it's been shown. What do you know? Australia's an old continent. The soils have been washed clean of most things. <laughs> One of them is iodine. Mm. How prevalent do you see it in your practice? Um, because you know, despite the, uh, Creswell Eastman's, you know, tearing at his brain because he just can't seem to get this message across mm. about the importance of iodine supplementation in some issues, mm. um, in some instances. But we now, uh, I think it was January 2010 or November 2010, um, that it came out as a clinical guideline for all pregnant women to receive a supplement, mm. not supplemented food, which it is, mm. but an added supplement mm. to women who are pregnant mm. of iodine, 150 micrograms. Mm. Why aren't people listening about this? This is a public health guideline. Why yeah. don't they know about this? <laughs> Slowly people are, um, are becoming aware of it. I'd say 
all doctors now are pretty much aware of that. It's the patients that are not so aware. So sometimes you'll get them coming in and saying, oh, I'm taking folate. But then you'll say, how about iodine? Mm. Um, then you'll go into that. But I find it comes up not just in um, periconception, but uh, also in PMS. So if someone uh, has nostalgia, so breast pain. Yes. Breast pain is a very amendable to things like iodine supplementation, magnesium, B6. Um, I find it... Avoidance the, of caffeine. <laughs> yeah, avoidance of <laughs> caffeine, exactly. Um, Theobromine. So it's 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 not just periconception, mm. but in general health and gynecology, I find it, it it's it's very prevalent. And I often do urine testing. I um, do, yeah, 24-hour? Um, no, usually a spot. A spot, yep. Um, I don't always test though because I usually, I try and go on symptoms mm. first because I try and avoid the cost to the patient and to the system. Mm -hmm. And I find if you ask a very good detailed history and good questions, sometimes, often, you can get away with not doing a test. I could chat with you for hours. Indeed, I'm going to invite you back to FX Medicine <laughs> because there's so many other issues we need to cover. Yeah. And I Progesterone truly... versus progestins. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's our next one. That's our next one. So... Let's invite you back for another podcast at another time. It would be my pleasure. And I just, I can't thank you enough, not just for joining us on FX Medicine, but for you being Dr. Tash. Thank because you. as I, as I said earlier, you really are taking medicine to the public, to the patients, to the streets, where patients can be empowered and they can then work with you as a colleague rather than sort of didactic approach that a, a lot of um, clinicians take. And I just can't thank you enough for that, for what you do for your patients. So thank you. Thank and I talked to Andreatis for joining us in, thank you. This, in FX Medicine today. Thank you for having me on. I've always wanted to be on. It's <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure, that. <laughs> thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.